Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27 through 30. I'll be reading out of the ESV, which I think most of you have. Um, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, as we come to the book of Philippians, I know that I only get one shot today, uh, so we're not going to go through the whole book. But, you know, Paul's letter to the people in Philippi is a letter of friendship. It's a letter where he loves these people. And he is writing to encourage them in their faith. And I thought it was appropriate uh, for me to uh, talk about this letter because it's a letter that has a foundational principle or foundational principles as it relates to a church. A church like Grace and a church like uh, I'm planting in Virginia. Uh, My name is George Boomer. I was the youth pastor here from 2000 to 2004. And now I'm planting a church in uh, the Tidewater area of Virginia. And as I think about the church that I'm planting and also thinking about the church that grace is, we have to always come back to this part of Philippians and and evaluate whether or not we are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side and contending for the faith of the gospel without fear of anyone around us. And so as I think about laying the foundation of the church that I'm laying the foundation, and I think about the church that really feels home, like home for my wife and I and, and our kids Um, I think that this is an appropriate uh, uh, series of verses. Because Paul is writing to a church that he has had a long history with. As a matter of fact, the Philippian letter was probably written about 12 years, about roughly 12 years after Paul's first experience with the people in Philippi. And after he had gone to Philippi, we see that Paul has a continuing relationship. We see this in Philippians 4. Turn over to Philippians 4, verses 14 and 15. In Philippians 4, Paul details a little bit of the relationship that he had with the people in Philippi. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So you see that the Philippian church is not only a church that Paul has founded back in Acts 16 on one of his journeys, but it's a church that has continued to love Paul and love them in such a way that they continue to support his ministry, saying, Paul, you brought the gospel to Philippi, and we're so encouraged by what you're doing that we want to become a part of it and give you money so that you can plant churches all over Asia Minor. And so that there's a deep relationship, there's an affection that Paul has for the church at Philippi, uh, much like when I think about Grace and I think about the church that I'm planting now in Tidewater, Grace is a church that supports the church plant. And so as I write, uh, as Paul is writing back to the church at Philippi, I think very fondly of so many friends and and family that we really have here in Lawrence. Matter of fact, most people, believe it or not, um, in Michigan thought that I came from Kansas because we would come back here and visit. And they go, well, you're going to visit family, right? And I go, of sorts. Uh, I don't really have any blood relation here in Kansas, 
But I have a lot of spiritual mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters here in Lawrence. And so it is a sweet place. And as Paul is writing to the people in Philippi, he's writing a letter that is filled with tenderness and affection. And yet it is a letter for encouraging them to continue to advance the gospel. Again, there are three parts in Philippians chapter 1 that I want to look at today. The first of which is this. Let me me run through them and then we're going to hit it again. As Paul looks at this in verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1, he says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Now, he says that living a life worthy of the gospel. I think that he he sets this up and then he begins to give you some detail as to what that is. What does it mean to live a life in the gospel, living a life worthy of the gospel? And he has three parts here. The first part is this, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. That's the first part. The second part is striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the third part, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, as we come to that first part, what does it mean for us to stand firm in one spirit and in one mind? What does that mean? What does that mean for Grace EPC? What does that mean for the church plant that I'm planting in Smithfield, Virginia? I think what Paul is saying here, and as he says elsewhere, that the gospel is at the center of what we're called to believe and defend. All churches have beliefs. But what Paul is saying is, he's saying, I want you to have one mind and one spirit that is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes, beware when your focus no longer is the gospel but are the things that are associated with the gospel or the things that come alongside because we can very easily begin to focus on these things which are not in and of themselves the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for grace? Well, I think this is what it means. That Jesus Christ is why we're here. The gospel, the proclamation of Jesus Christ is why we exist, to bring glory to the Father. That's why we're here. I mean, why do we do missions? To bring glory to God. We don't do missions so that we feel better about ourselves. We do it to bring glory to God. Why do we do Link? Why do we do Sunday school? Why do we do VBS? Why do we do youth ministry? Why do we worship? It is to bring glory to God. It is to proclaim the gospel in a world that is decaying and ravaged by sin. And what I've seen in the midst of the church... um, is that we can very easily become focused on our preferences and our likes and our dislikes rather than on the gospel. And what happens in the context of a church is we begin to fight in and amongst ourselves uh, over things such as money. Where are we going to spend money? Are we going to spend money over here? Are we going to spend money over here? I have seen churches, but a part of churches, not this one, not this one, where I've seen people get upset over the percentage of money going to missions. And what they will do is they will fight, and I mean fight, over 1% or 2%. You know, I really think that missions should get 30%. Well, I really think missions should get 28%. And all of a sudden, they're fighting over 2%. 2% they're fighting over, and when they're fighting, they can't be advancing the gospel. Because they're not standing firm in one spirit. It's sad. I've seen churches uh, torn apart because of the color of the carpet or the space that they're, they're in. 
I've seen churches torn apart because of worship wars. I've seen churches torn apart because they fight with one another. And Paul is saying, you know, you guys are about 12 years old. This is the Philippian church. Grace is about, I guess, about 18 years old now. And he's 19, 19 years. Um, He's saying, don't allow yourselves to fight over these things that are trivial and insignificant when you compare them to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Don't allow yourselves to do that. Now, the thought for me is, what is the gospel? And what is it that we are called to defend? Turn over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10 give us a summation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We see that God is a loving God in the context of the gospel. God is a loving God, but love is not His only attribute. God is not only a loving God, but God is a righteous and just God. He is a holy God, and not only once holy, He is thrice holy in the book of Isaiah. He is holy, holy, holy. And God cannot allow sin to enter into His presence. And we, as, as sinners, as we as people, know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. So we have this cosmic problem We have a sinful man and we have a thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy God and a sinful man. And God does this amazing thing in the gospel. He recognizes the fact that he must punish sin. And he must punish sin with an adequate, suitable sacrifice. And the only sacrifice that's suitable is his own son. So he sends Jesus. And Jesus comes, sheds um, the glory of God in heaven and comes in the form of man. Not only a man, a baby in a manger. Lives a perfect life. Teaches, performs miracles. And then dies a sinner's death. Dies a criminal's death on the cross for you and I. That's the gospel message. Because this is what happens on the cross. The glory of the cross is this is that our sins are transferred and placed upon Jesus. And His righteousness is imputed to us or placed upon us. So that because of Christ, because of our belief in Christ, because of our union with Christ, when God looks upon us, He sees His Son and the righteousness of Christ. When Ephesians 6 talks about us putting upon the breastplate of righteousness, it is the breastplate that is given to us by Christ. And Christ satisfies the righteous wrath of God, the holy wrath of God. He is our great substitute. And at the heart of the gospel is a penalty must be paid and it's placed upon a substitute. A penal substitutionary atonement. That's what that long word means. A penalty, we need a substitute, and then things are made right. That's at the heart of the gospel. As we think about that, we think about the second part. 
Because if that is what the gospel is, if this is what we've set aside and we say we're going to stand firm in one spirit with one mind saying this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that has changed us from sinners into saints. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that has power. Now we're going to advance that gospel into a world full of sin. To a people who are dying and desperate for it. The second part of what Paul says in the book of Philippians. And I love this. I love this because this is a, this is glorious language. He goes that you may, you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, why this language is so appropriate here is that the Philippian or the, the place of Philippi, Philippi is a city was a Roman colony and it was, um, I would say, populated by ex-Roman soldiers. So if you're a Roman soldier, you serve in the phalanx and everything else that's going on, and a lot of times you retire, and you retire to a place like Philippi. So when Paul uses this language, he's using the terms of military advancement. You're going to strive side by side, together, advancing the gospel. And you see what, how necessary it is to be of one mind and one spirit. Because if... if your neighbor is going a different direction than you, you get killed. It's not good. Um, to, to use a, a different analogy, you ever, um, so, some of you are, are just giddy today because of what happened yesterday at KU and K-State. Uh, Larry, he's giddy. He's giddy. Go talk to him. He's giddy. You know, but when you watch football sometimes and you're watching a game uh, and you'll see, uh, you know, they huddle up together and they all call the same play. You know, quarterback X, Y, Z, cross, blah, 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 color, color, long two. They break, and they all go to, to the line of scrimmage, okay? And then they run the play, and the quarterback does something that nobody understands because he throws the ball to an area where there's no receiver, and you see the receiver go, I was going this way, and the receiver's going, you know, like this, and you realize that they're not on the same page. You know, the receiver thinks they're running one play, and the quarterback thinks he's throwing to another play. And what happens is, in the context of the church, sometimes we get confused because we see these other things and we're going in different directions. And what Paul is saying is, if you're going in different directions, if you have the plays crossed, how are you going to advance the gospel in a world that is going to be coming at you? How are you going to do that if you're not on the same page? And so he says, striving together, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. When I think about the gospel and I think about what it does, um, I must confess that I forget many times that the gospel is powerful. I forget it because I, to some degree I live in fear. Or I'm just um, bamboozled, I guess. You know, I just I don't get it. But when I think about the gospel and I think about our own lives, and I want you to reflect upon this. I want you to reflect upon who you were before you knew Christ. What you loved. What you spent your time on. What you spent your money on. What did you do? And then when somebody shared the gospel with you. When somebody shared with you that it's not on you to be good enough. Somebody was already good enough. That there's no sin that you have committed that cannot be covered over by the blood of Christ. I've seen people just um, 
saddened because as they think about their past sins, they feel as if they can never be forgiven. And I look at them, and, I, and I, I, just this past week, just this past week, uh, I had a man uh, in our church who's going to be part of the church plant um, who's getting ready to ha- have a, a heart procedure. And, um, and, and I went to him, and, and we were talking, and, and he said, he said, George, you know, I, I really want to be in the book of life. I just don't know if I am. And so I asked him, I said, well, what's, what, what's stopping you? I mean, if, if, if you believe in Christ, then you're his, and you're, and you're in the book. And he goes, I just don't know how merciful God is. And what he's saying there, what he's saying there is that I'm a terrible sinner. And, uh, and he's a Vietnam vet. And he's got some demons in his past that he has a hard time shaking. And he thinks about all the things that he's done in his past, things he's done to his wife, to his children, to his family, and he's overwhelmed by his own sin. And, 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 I, and, I, and I very gently you know, said, you know, we need to think about this. The infinite God of the universe died on the cross for your sin. Do you think that the death of God is not sufficient to cover over your sins? Because if you think that your sins as an individual are greater than the substitution given by the almighty God of the universe, then you have a pride problem. And I say that very gently, but I want you to know that the blood of Christ can cover over all these things. And he said, well, it's good to think about that. And then my prayer for him is that he would understand the depth of his own sin, but that he would understand more the height of grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Because it's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel to turn drug addicts into pastors. It's the power of the gospel to turn homosexuals, men just addicted to homosexuality, to heal them and free them from the bondages of sin. We've seen it. There's a man in my uh, church in Michigan, um, and this is to demonstrate the power of the gospel. Um, his, uh, I'm going to call him, uh, well, I'll just call him Joe. Uh, Joe came to our church. He had this sweet uh, young wife. They had two little girls. He came to our church. And, uh, and everything seemed to be going well. He came to the church. You know, they wanted to get involved. And I asked, asked Joe, I said, hey, Joe, you want to go out to lunch sometime? And, uh, and so I went out to lunch with Joe. And, and as, in the context of the lunch, I said, well, Joe, tell me your story of conversion. You know, tell me what you believe about God. And he says, well, I really believe in God. And, you know, he's good. And I'm just excited to be a part of the people of God. But I never heard in the midst of his story anything about sin, anything about repentance, anything about the gospel, anything about a changed life. I heard a lot about works, you know, doing good works. Good works. And so then I, I was able to share the gospel. And I said, Judd, I, I think you don't quite understand where we're coming from here. This is what the gospel says. So he listened to me a little bit. He thought about it. He's like, well, I, I think I believe all that. And I was like, okay, well, we'll just let that sit for a while. We'll let that steep, you know, a little bit in him, okay? About a month later, I got a phone call at home from his wife. And she says, I can't find Joe. Can't find him. I'm like, what do you mean you can't find him? I don't know where he is. He's been gone for 48 hours. Don't know where he is. 
And I go, what's going on? You know, what's going on with this guy? He's got this great job. I mean, he had a great job, making a lot of money, pretty successful guy. Um, I get a phone call from his wife. He's been missing 48 hours. She calls me back a day later saying they found him. I'm like, well, where was Joe? He was under a bridge in an underpass. This is January in Detroit. Under an underpass in downtown Detroit, uh, downtown Detroit, overdosed on heroin. Joe's a heroin addict. An addict. George, could you come to the hospital and see us? I'm like, wow. Seminary does not prepare you for some of these things. So I show up at the hospital, and Joe has been, you know, because they've had to flush his system, he is just as bloated as he can be because they're trying to get all these toxins out of his system. And I'm sitting there talking to Joe. And the amazing thing about Joe, remember he'd been there for 48 hours, um, underneath an underpass, passed out, was that he came back. You know, I mean, he, he regained all of his uh, feeling in his extremities. Uh, he was able to go into detox, and then he was able to come out. Now, that's, that's the sad part of the story. But because of that, I think God used that to show Joe his sin. Because three months later, after Joe had gotten out, he began to become a very vibrant part of our church. He began to attend men's ministry Bible studies. He began to attend church on a regular basis with his wife and family. His wife got involved in women's ministry. And and after about another three months, Joe came to me and says, You know, George, remember that lunch we had? I said, Yeah, I remember. He goes, George, I didn't get it. I didn't understand what the gospel was about. And he said, and I really, really still love drugs, but I really love Jesus and I love my family. And I look at that. And, and, and Joe, having said that, a year later, yeah, he's still clean. He's still clean. He's still always going to struggle with some of those things. But the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of the gospel into someone's life is a powerful, powerful thing. And we forget that. We forget that as a body of Christ. We forget that as individuals. I was telling somebody recently, I said, when you proclaim the gospel to somebody, you know what it's like? It's like throwing a stick of dynamite right into their living room uh, floor. And we're just waiting for that thing to explode because the gospel is powerful. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. We forget that the gospel is powerful. And as we proclaim the gospel, as the gospel gets into us, Jesus changes everything. We are radically different people before Christ and after Christ. Radically different. We're not perfect. We still struggle with sin. A lot. We still struggle with sin. That won't be taken away until we go home to be in glory with with, with Christ or until he comes. We're a part of that generation that's swept up. But the gospel's powerful, and I forget that. And I need to reflect upon the gospel in my own life and in my own heart. So we need to stand firm, standing firm together um, with one spirit, knowing what the gospel is, not allowing all these other things of preferences and likes and dislikes, of saying, I really want this ministry at the church, and I want this ministry, and I want this ministry. If they're not going to give it, then I'm going to become bitter, or I'm not going to become bitter, I'm just not going to participate. That's That's garbage. You know, that's just garbage. You know, in the church of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, we are to stand together, united around Jesus Christ, striving forward, going out these doors to advance the gospel. Because we are beggars who have found bread. And we want to show other beggars where we found it. We are people who have been blinded by sin in the world. And our eyes have been opened so that we see what is right. And we are going out 
telling people where to go to find the light so they can see clearly. In the last section of this, um, the last section in Philippians 1 says this in verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Not frightened by anything by your opponents. You know, the Philippian people in, in this time, uh, remember they're about a 12-year-old church. There's a little bit of fighting going on in their own midst. Uh, they were struggling with, with um, just how to get along, how to, how to develop ministries, how to carry people from immaturity to maturity in faith. But they were also struggling against a, a Roman country that was saying that Caesar is emperor and you need to worship and bow down to him. And the people were beginning to capitulate, or at least there was a tendency, a temptation to say, you know what, maybe we can merge these things together. You know, maybe we can kind of take these things, we you know the culture and, the, and, and what we know about the gospel, and maybe we can merge these things together so that everything looks good and we can just continue to advance and everything's great. But Paul's saying here, you know, it's not true. Because the gospel, like in First Peter, the gospel is a huge stumbling block. And if you live for the gospel, you live for Jesus Christ, you will offend people. You will. And if you have not offended somebody with Jesus Christ, then you've probably not been living like you should be living. We should be offending people with the gospel. And we do it gently. We do it with great humility because we're sinners saved by grace. And we go to them and we go, you know, the only way that you can be saved is Jesus. I was listening to a pastor who was recounting a story. He had a friend of his who, who would come to him, who he had known for a long time. And he would come to him and say, you know, I'm really having problems in my marriage. And this was a non-Christian talking to a pastor. And the pastor would say, you know what you need? You need Jesus. And so you know, about six months later, they continued to be friends. And uh, he comes to him and says, you know, I'm really having problems at work. You know, what do you think I should do? I think you should repent and believe and you need Jesus. Uh, a year goes by. He's having a problem with his children. He goes to him and says, you know, I'm really having problems with my children. What do you think I should do? And I don't want you to tell me it's Jesus. I don't want, because when you tell me it's Jesus, you offend me. So the pastor said, well, here's the deal, man. I think not only do your children need Jesus, I think you need Jesus. And as far as offending you goes, if I don't offend you with this, I offend Jesus. (laughs) Because he's the only answer. And when it comes down to either offending you or offending Jesus, you lose. <laughs> he goes, because I'm not offending Jesus. I'm going to offend you. And I hope at some point that the stumbling block of the gospel will no longer be a stumbling block, but rather it will be the cornerstone of all that you do and all that you believe. And that you will run to the rock, which is Jesus Christ, rather than running to all these other things that you think will satisfy you. In the context of the, the Philippians, I think about this, and I think about this in the context of personal evangelism. Um, I think about why don't we as a church, and, and, and when I say church, I'm talking about my church, the church I'm planting, the church that I've been a part of. I'm also talking about Grace EPC. Why don't we uh, view um, our homes and our neighborhoods as kingdom outposts, you know, kind of where when we come together at church and we leave these doors, we realize that we have a clear mandate to go out and proclaim the gospel and to see unbelievers converted for the glory of God. Why don't we think like that? And it's because we're fearful. We're fearful of what other people will think of us. We're fearful um, of losing um, just 
some of the dignity that we have, um, we're scared. I mean, what would it take for you to invite somebody in your neighborhood to come to church with you? What would it take for you to invite somebody in your neighborhood or somebody that you work with to a Bible study with you? Some of you do that, and that's wonderful. But I know many of you do not. Many of you don't even think like that. And I struggle to think like that, and I'm a pastor. And I'm called to think like that all the time. But we're called to strive together, contending for the gospel. You know, my view, as I'm laying the foundation for this church that we're planting, is this. Is that I want to come together on Sunday morning. I want the grace of God, the means of grace, the proclamation of the word, prayer, and the sacraments that are duly administered to fill us up as the people of God. That we come and that Sunday is the one day out of the week that looks more like heaven than the rest of the week. And that we come and we are excited to be there on Sunday morning. And we are filled because God pours forth grace upon us. And then from Sunday morning, then we go out to do ministry in our neighborhoods and in our communities. Yeah, that's my desire and that's the foundation I want to lay. And I believe that that is the foundation that Paul is trying to lay with the Philippians. And the Philippians are worried because they're saying, but what about if we're persecuted? What happens if, if the government comes and they come in and they throw us in jail? What about then? We're scared of that. Paul says, that can be used for God's benefit. Don't you remember? Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. The wonderful story. It's one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about it a little bit differently. I want you to think about the circumstance of Paul when this occurs. What is the circumstance of Paul when the Philippian jailer is converted? In verse 16 to chapter 16, I'm just going to read for a while. I'll stop um, a little later. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. That's power, by the way. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What a happy story. You know, what a happy story we're at right now. You know, the, the, the power of the gospel has gone forth. A, a girl who's demon-possessed is no longer demon-possessed. Do we see a hallelujah? No, we see the people grabbing them, beating them with rods, throwing them in jail. So you're thinking Paul's pretty down right now. But keep reading. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. 
And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's what happened. Paul, writing the book of Philippians, is in a Roman prison. And he says, as he's in a Roman prison, that my imprisonment has been for the advance of the gospel so that the gospel may go forward. And here's what he means. That is, Paul, in the context of a Roman house prison, what's going on is that individual guards are assigned to Paul. Paul gets individual guards to watch over him. And and he's allowed some freedom. He can go in and out and do a little bit. But at the same time, he's under guard. Well, in the midst of that, the Praetorium Guard is rotating their shifts. So if you're the Apostle Paul, this is wonderful. Because now you have a new person to share Jesus with every shift change you know so all of a sudden somebody comes in he goes hey what's your name my name is paul what's your name okay you're not going to tell me let me tell you about jesus over and over and over again you paul's view of the gospel was that the gospel has so affected me it knocked me off a horse knocked me off a horse changed my life a great persecutor and murderer of the saints of god and now i am the apostle to the gentiles there's power in the gospel There's power in the gospel when we think about our own lives. And he's calling the church in Philippi, much like we can call grace to stand firm in one spirit, surrounding one thing, saying this is what's important. And then striving side by side with a common mission. And that mission, just just go outside. Go outside and look. Look at the houses over here. Look at the houses over here. Look at the houses and the people that you pass on your way home. That's your mission field. That's the beginning of the mission field. Striving side by side to carry the gospel forward without fear of anyone. Knowing that even in the midst of persecution, even if you are made fun of, you know, you invite somebody to church and they call you narrow-minded, well, that might strike up another conversation. You know, inviting somebody to a small group, just loving your neighbor. I mean, one of the things I'm convicted by uh, in the context of the churches that are in the United States and in my own convictions, my own conviction. Uh, and so because I'm up here and you give me the time, I'm going to place my own conviction upon you. Uh, but here it is. When was the last time we had our neighbors over for dinner? Do we know the names of all of our neighbors around us? Do we know the names of our, their children? Do we know the struggles? Do we know the history? You know, we are called in the body of Christ, to love God first and then to love others. When I think about the mission that we have or the mission that you have as grace and the mission that I have as planting a new church, the mission that we have is to get people to engage their neighbors, to engage their coworkers, to engage their families with the gospel, remembering that the gospel is powerful. And that every time we proclaim the name of Jesus and call people to belief and faith and repentance, that it works miracles. That men, dead men and women, are called to life. That's what we're called to be. I'm going to conclude by reading this verse. Um, and I, I, this, this verse is a, a sweet verse to me. Um, Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. And it's why we preach. It's why we share the gospel. Um, Romans 10, 14 and 15. But how are they to call on him 
in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the gospel, for it changes everything. Father, give us a new proclamation, a new perspective. Father, give us a new purpose, and that purpose, Lord, would be to bring you glory. And Father, what would bring you more glory than seeing sinners change into saints through the power of the gospel message? Father, may our heart's desire be to bring you glory and honor. And Father, we pray, I pray, Lord, that as we come together on Sunday, we would long for these days, long for these days when we can come and sing the praises of your Son and of your plan of redemption. And Father, where we can hear the word and be uplifted and encouraged by those around us. And Father, I pray that you would fill us, fill us to overflowing so that as we leave here, as we go back to our homes, all over Lawrence, all over Baldwin and Eudora and uh, even Topeka and all, all over the place, Lord, that we would be ambassadors for Christ, that we would proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, that we could not help but tell others because we love you so much. Father, may the words of our lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Father, give us great zeal for your glory. And Father, give us great joy in knowing Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The response to the benediction is, Jesus is Lord, hallelujah. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord, hallelujah.